So today the internet was down, so I'm preaching analog from actual paper notes. Have you ever seen these? So you have to swipe from right to left to move forward in them. But so you want to hear a terrible story? All right, we're going to hear a terrible story about some misfortune my friend had. So my friend, Tim, in seminary, and I, I apologize if I've told this story before. I don't think I have. He was a huge Apple fan, like Steve Jobs' Apple, not like the fruit. So he, he loved Apple, and he had loved Apple since before Steve Jobs came back to the company. I think Steve Jobs came back in 2000, like 1997. He was, he was gone for 10 years. They kicked him out. But my friend loved Apple so much in high school that actually he and his mother bought Apple stock before the time when the iPod and the iPhone were released. So for his birthday, he, would, he said, Mom, you know, we love Apple. Can I have some Apple stock for my birthday? She'd buy him 100 bucks of Apple stock, okay? So the iPod was released in 2001, right? The iPhone was released in 2007. These are the things that catapulted Apple into the stratosphere of, of companies and pretty much you can't throw an iPhone without hitting an iPhone user, <laughs> as the expression goes. Um, problem was, my friend Tim sold his Apple stock in 1999. <laughs> and so he had to become a pastor. <laughs> Isn't that a sad story? <laughs> so um, I asked my friend Tim, how much money do you estimate you could have had, and he wouldn't tell me. <laughs> so I did some research. So a mere $100 investment in Apple stock at the beginning of 2002 would have grown to more than 130 times the original investment by mid-October 2019. 130 times the original investment. So... Um, Judging from the, the couple thousand I think he had, he'd have something like $400,000, something crazy like that. Enough to buy a one-bedroom home in New Jersey near New York City, you know, a, a small little flat, just where he lives and serves the Lord now. But somehow his, his faith has remained. It's moved forward. So that's a completely tr uh, true story uh, about how my friend Tim lost almost half a million dollars. Gets higher every time I tell it, right? So I tell that story to introduce this story. Steve Jobs, the, the famous CEO from Apple, was a very remarkable person. And that's not saying anything good or bad. Like, he was, he was impactful. He was a big splash. Um, he had the it factor for leaders. And all of these leadership books that get written today kind of oftentimes will point back to Steve Jobs. He was known for his creativity for his attention to very, very small details, for his extreme pushiness with people, you know, which actually kind of seems to have run him out of the company in the late 80s uh, when he was let go by Apple. Uh, but very unconventional, un unconventional. He was able to take an idea that he believed in and against everyone else's advice, push forward with it and turn out to be right. He had the it factor. I watched a really hilarious video of Microsoft's old CEO, taken in 2007 when the iPhone was released, and he was on the news laughing about how stupid the iPhone was. And he said in the clip, he's like, oh, yeah, right, like, who's going to buy a $500 iPhone that's subsidized by the company? That's, no one's going to do that. You know, we have 
Everyone wants a phone with a keyboard on it. These are business people. They don't want some touchscreen device. And it's kind of hilarious to watch it now because obviously you can't, like I said, hit an iPhone user uh, with an iPhone anywhere you throw an iPhone. You know, that's, that's how it is. And now they're selling for like $1,200. So somehow Steve Jobs was right. Uh, the amazing thing about Steve Jobs to me and what's been noted about him was that he was someone who was able to focus on the big picture, like, you know, having, having a standoff with AT&T over control of his phone. Like, he would stand up to these giant companies and win. So that's the big picture. He also had attention to the tiniest of details. His father was a woodworker, a carpenter, electrician guy. He grew up in this home. His father was obsessed with using the best materials for every part of everything that he built. So Steve Jobs recalls his father taking, like, like uh, the wood that's going to be used behind the cabinet, right? Against the wall, never to be seen by human eyes. And his dad was obsessed with the nicest pieces of wood being in this hidden place. So as a result, you know, when Steve Jobs was building uh, his Apple machines, if there was a seam inside the plastic casing of a computer, there was, there was one time where he demanded that his employees hand sand that seam off and polish it. So even the unseen piece was flawless. He demanded, one of the stories is that the processors have straight lines in the, electri in the, electri in the electronic pieces that are inside of his products. That was his thing, aesthetics, attention to detail. And I'm not here to preach in the name of Steve Jobs today. It's not Steve Jobs through which you are saved, you know, obviously. But a remarkable person and someone that possesses one of those things of leadership that, that, that you need to have as a leader. That's to be able to have the big picture and the small picture at the same time. And no one did this better than Jesus. You can probably guess that. Um, Jesus was able to notice the smallest of details and also the big picture, often in the same breath, and evaluate everything. As you see of the name of the sermon, everything we have belongs to God. We are caretakers. Jesus uh, saw the big picture of what people were and what they did and understood what motivated them and evaluated um, these things in a masterful way. And, uh, and through the passage we're going to look at today, you'll see this in action. So today we are looking at uh, Matt, uh, Luke. We're going to be in Luke 21, 1 to 4. We're going to start in Luke 20, 41 to 44. This is a big picture uh, section of this story. Jesus is talking to a mixed crowd, teachers of the law, scribes, also his disciples and regular folk. And Jesus asked the people a question, which is really not usual for Jesus. Usually people would ask Jesus a question, and he would answer it. And through his answer, you'd get a teaching. But here, Jesus, independently of anyone else, asks a question, because it's something that he finds to be very important for us to understand. Jesus said to the crowd, Why is it that the Messiah is the son of David? 
David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make the enemy, your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Jesus says, David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Jesus is posing a problem with an ancient text from Psalm 110 of David where it seems to say David's son is this, this, this Messiah figure. And not only is he David's son, but he's, David says to him, my Lord, which is a very strange thing to say to your son. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The scribes and the teachers that tried to figure out what this passage meant for a really, really long time. And the, one of the reasons it was so confusing in both the Hebrew and the Greek is because Jewish people out of respect for God would never pronounce his name. You're familiar with, with the name Yahweh? Y-H-W-H. It's unpronounceable. It doesn't have any, any of the vowels or words needed to pronounce it. So they would never pronounce God's name out of respect for God. And so they translated whenever God's name came up as Lord. So they ended up saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make the enemies a footstool for your feet. The problem with that is it doesn't make any sense. Why would David say of his son, you are my Lord? Well, Jesus uh, decides to give a theory on that. It's hard to use the non-iPad. See? Steve Jobs? Jesus has a, has a theory on this, and he says, well, the reason that David can say he's the Lord is, was not just a mistake of writing, but it's because the Son of Man is also divine. He is the Messiah. And so this, this Son of David, fully man, is also fully God, the Lord. So, the, so David speaking, Jesus is saying that the Son of David, Jesus, was from the line of David in, in terms of his human uh, line. He's not just a man, but he's an eternal, Psalm 110 says, an eternal priest. Psalm 110, that passage that, that he's quoting, goes on to say that this person that David calls Lord is an eternal priest. It also says that he will have an eternal rule which will never be shaken. Not just greater than the average priest, but eternal. This is a God word. So Jesus is saying in this theological argument that he brings up, here's something important, everybody. You've been confused about the scripture. Here's the big picture. It's talking about me. I am 100% man, and I'm also fully God. I'm, the, I'm from the line of David, from, from real an human ancestors, but I am, in essence, God himself in the flesh. It's a divine mystery that Jesus is saying, this is important for you all to know this. And so I'll solve your problem right here. So I find that interesting. You know, Jesus, like I said, Jesus does not ask many questions. He mostly answers them. The few questions he does ask are very important because he's trying to tell people something about him. And the most important thing he's saying to these people is, I am God and I'm also fully man. It's a mystery. But I am this, this eternal priest, this eternal king with an eternal rule that David was speaking about in Psalm 110. I, I find that very interesting. So that's big, big, big picture. You know, it's, it's cosmic. And then Jesus comes right back to the small details, like Steve Jobs sanding the inside of a computer chassis. So listen to the reading on in Luke 20, 
45 to 47, right after he says these things. It says, while all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at banquets. It wasn't good enough for them to be in the best seat in their own house. Also, when they got invited to a party, best seat. Also, they devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. So we've heard from Jesus on the big idea picture. I'm, I'm fully God. I'm fully man. I am the Messiah you've been waiting for. And now we see that Jesus, the amazing leader that he was, also noticed all the small details of what was going on around him. He watched the people that were going to church. He watched the people outside of the church and the, the quote-unquote sinners that were being shunned by, by church people. He saw it all. And his conclusions were, you need to be aware of those religious people, the teachers of the law. They show their pride and their greed in all the tiny decisions they make to elevate themselves. And here's some examples, Jesus says. They, it says, love to walk around in a flowing robe. And this is a sign, a status symbol, right? This is a sign of wealth and status above other people. They love to wear their special flowing robe and their cape, whatever it might be. Beware of them. He says, they love to be greeted in public in the hearing of others with respect. Again, they're using their private face to hear someone be respectful of them and say good things about them for the purpose of other people hearing those things. Again, a pride problem. Lifting themselves up above everybody else. A status problem. Lording their, their uh, place over other people. That's what they do. Third, these, this is something else small that Jesus has noticed about these people. He's noticed that at the synagogue, they always take the best seat. According to Deuteronomy 26, Moses' law, uh, the priest is responsible for taking care of the most vulnerable people, the widows, orphans, whoever is very vulnerable, that's their job. But instead of this, they are taking the best seats, not only in synagogues, but at every birthday party they go to. You know, invite this, this teacher of the law over, and they, they're sitting in daddy's chair, right? And, and they're... they're by placing themselves in this important position, you have to understand they're bumping someone else down. So Deuteronomy says spiritual leaders are supposed to lift people up. These people are bumping the least, okay, in society down to a lower position so that they can take the highest position, not just in the temple, but at parties. Jesus has noticed that. And finally, much like the Old Testament prophets, Jesus talks about this idea that they, are de they devour widows and make a show of long and complicated-sounding prayers. As I said, the law of Moses states that spiritual leaders are supposed to take care of the most vulnerable, the widows in their congregations. But instead, they were overlooking those people that God most wanted them to look after purposefully, while at the same time demanding from these poor people whatever they had. Very sad. And very not pleasing to God. And in this, 
in these small decisions that these people were making. It showed that they missed the mark. They didn't understand what it meant to be a spiritual leader, to not be the highest person in the room. And the energy they could have used to serve those people was instead used to make long, complicated-sounding prayers in public for other people to hear and think, wow, those people are very spiritual. So Jesus' teaching to his disciples is, beware. Beware of these people. Because the kind of thing they're trying to season your life with is not the kind of things that I think make people great. And Jesus is talking to his disciples, the future leaders of his church, saying, you need to not be like that. Don't be influenced by these teachings. So in the context of of just these few verses, we see that Jesus has both a cosmic interest, that people understand that he's fully God, fully man, from the line of David, but born of the Holy Spirit, divine, God-man, all the way down to the most minute details of observing the way people are conducting themselves in society and warning his disciples against being influenced by those people. Picking it up in the next chapter, Luke 21, right after this, uh, this scathing kind of rebuke, it says, As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So Jesus sees the wealthy putting in their gifts. doesn't say anything negative about that, but he does notice something that other people don't notice. And that's this widow putting in everything she has to live in. And as he is observing this to his disciples, perhaps expecting them to respond to to him uh, pointing this widow out, they're pretty distracted. It says, um, some of his disciples were remarking about how beautiful the temple was, adorned with beautiful stones, with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. So in contrast to these spiritual leaders that are flaunting their wealth and power while neglecting the spiritual duty they had before God to take care of the widows and the vulnerable, Jesus sees something that his disciples and other people don't see. Jesus saw the widow put in these coins and Jesus, being God, knew This is what all she had to live on. Jesus' disciples, in contrast, don't notice those small details. They have no reaction to Jesus pointing out this woman. But instead, they remark on the beauty of the temple and the beautiful stones and gifts made to God. And Jesus comments that this very impressive structure, it was a very impressive temple. It took a very long time to rebuild. It It was a glorious place of worship. Jesus comments, again, going into the big picture, this impressive structure will be destroyed. No stone will be laid on, will be standing on another stone. It will be completely wiped out. So all that your eyes are seeing that seems so impressive, it's going to be gone. When will this happen? Well, they ask for signs, and he gives some teaching about, about what will happen to that temple. But we know in 70 A.D., that temple was destroyed, you know? We're talking like 40 years after Jesus made this prediction. 
The big picture was so big for Jesus. He could see, he can see the end from the beginning. He knew the destiny of that temple. He knew it was, it was going to be a worthless pile. And he saw the value of the small, seemingly small gift this widow put in that no one else saw. An amazing characteristic. Jesus saw, sees the cosmic picture, the Son of Man, the Son of God, God in the flesh, to the small picture, the people that are coming to worship God and give to him, to the details of how people treated one another in, in a place of worship, all the way to a future time that hadn't even happened yet. This is the perspective of Christ. It's cosmic. So after the warning of the destruction of the temple that was going to come, Jesus gives these general guidelines for how the disciples are to live during this time. Because this prophecy of the destruction of the temple, it ends up bleeding into talk about the actual end of time. So Jesus is both talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. He also hints at the end of time when everything will come to an end in history. He says, the end of all things will one day come to everyone who lives on the face of the earth. And Jesus kind of points out to his disciples how to live with this eternal perspective. So in verse 33, after telling about the signs of the destruction of the temple, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away till all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down from, with carousing, drunkenness, and anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. So what does Jesus teach here? In light of the fact that history is coming to a close, that eternal perspective, that he had a huge perspective, he first says, be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and anxieties of life. And then all of a sudden, the end of all things will close like a trap. Now, what, what is he saying? Well, he's, he's, he's saying, be sober-minded, because time is limited. And eventually, time closes like a trap. And this, this could easy, easily be applied to each of our lives as individuals, but he's applying it to the end of all things, when the end of the world comes. He's saying, it's going to come, so... Be on the watch, he says, and in prayer, given that picture. For one day, everyone will stand before the Son of Man, which is the name that Jesus gives to himself, the Son of Man, the Son of God. So what can be said of such a diverse pa passage of Scripture that has such a, a zoomed-out view and then a zoomed-in view? It says God's ways of measuring reality is different from the way that we measure reality. Because just like he is the Son of Man, the Son of God, and knows all things, it's also his desire that the same attention be given to questions of human behavior and integrity on both large and small scales. God's way of measuring importance is higher than ours. God focuses on the, the macro picture of the world and the micro picture of the world at the same time. 
and he weighs those things as equally important in his eyes. God is, is perhaps more interested in, a person, in what a person does than what they believe at times. God is equally interested in your theology about him being the son of David and the son of God. But he's also concerned about the states of our hearts in terms of our giving, such as in the example of the rich flaunting their wealth versus the widow giving all she has. And his whole t- teaching on why we need to be careful and live in this careful way is because someday we're all going to stand before him, and some of us sooner than others. And if we become distracted by, by this world, by the anxieties of life, if we become distracted on obsessive, being obsessed with believing the right things to the detriment of doing the right things, and we neglect things like the state of our hearts in terms of our giving to the Lord and taking care of widows, orphans, and other vulnerable people in our society, you know, that's going to, the, the, the end of the day will show itself for what it is. You know, God, man looks on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. So why would I choose this passage as a way to illustrate this idea that everything we have belongs to God? We are caretakers. Because everything that, every gift that we have, every possession we have, everything that we've earned, when we put it in God's hands, as Romans 12.1 says, I offer you in view of God's mercy to offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God. If we take everything that we've been given, all that we are, and put it in God's hands, then the things that are in our hands become things that God can use in the world. Everything we have belongs to God. This poor widow gave everything she had to live, live on to the treasury. And God saw that, and it was beautiful. And that showed... That showed that her devotion to God and her view was that everything belongs to God. I can trust him to take care of me. And she, she stewarded those two copper coins so well. Whereas the rich and the well-off, they lost sight. They lost sight of the heart of God for the poor, for serving, for the widows, the orphans. We could say the homeless, the destitute the children, they lost sight of all of that stuff, but they still had all the religious trappings of the day. So they looked good. They're wearing the right robes. They, they prayed impressive prayers. And they, they were generally impressive and impressed with themselves, but they forgot about the weightier matters of the law, which is what you do. You know, faith without works is dead, the Bible says. All of this all of our belief in how we, how we conduct ourselves um, as Christians, if it's not founded in this place that everything we are and everything we has, have belongs to God, and we're holding back, you know, it's going, to, it's going to hurt us. So this morning, as the worship band comes, uh, we're, we're going to have a time to pray. And um, I, would just, I would just want to, to invite you to offer yourself to God. The, the, the classic story is in the Old Testament, and um, Moses comes in contact with God. And Moses is someone who um, has, has murdered somebody, was in exile. He had kind of a rap sheet at this point in his life. And, and he sees a, a bush that's burning, but is not consumed. And he comes up to that bush, and God says, Moses, I'm going to make you the person 
that sets my people free. I'm going to work through you to set my people that have been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years free. And Moses is very sheepish about it. He says, no, I can't do it. I couldn't possibly do it. What if they don't believe me? And then God says to Moses, well, what is in your hand? And he goes, it's a staff. He goes, throw it on the ground. And it turned into a snake. He gave him this, um, this amazing ability to take this simple tool from everyday life, throw it down, and it became something that God could use. That's the essence of, of everything we have belonging to God. You know, when we take what we have, what's in our hands, and offer it back to God, he's not, he's not trying to, to rob us or make us destitute. He just wants to have access to our lives, access to what's in our hands, access to what's in our hearts. He wants us to have eyes that don't see the big exclamation points of society that everyone wants you to look at. He wants us to have eyes to see the, the poor widow giving everything she has. He wants us to have eyes to see injustice, to see the orphan, to see, to see the most vulnerable people, and to, and to serve and love them. Um, when, we get, when we go to the banquet, taking the lesser seat and lifting someone else up. When we go to church, lifting other people up. Having the mindset that all, of, all that we have belongs to God. We are only caretakers. And we want to steward what he's given us in order to, to lift other people up to Jesus who can't otherwise make it themselves. It's a humble thing. And the greatest among us, Jesus said, is the one who's servant to all, who lifts other people up. So let's offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is our spiritual act of worship. Let us not be conformed to the pattern of this world, the shiny temples and the pretty stones of someone dedicated to God sometime in the past that will soon be destroyed. Let us not be deceived by these big exclamation points. But let, let's let her have our minds transformed by God so we will be able to test and approve what God's will is in this world, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So I invite you to stand offer yourself to God as he asks you what is in your hand everything that you have belongs to me lift it up to me let me use it give me access Father God thank you thank you for your love for your grace thank you for for Jesus such a polarizing figure who challenges us at every corner God every time we look at the life of Christ we're challenged out of our comfortable place into new territory to serve you and love you, to live differently. And we, we offer ourselves to you this morning. We don't have much, but what we have is yours. We put it in your hands. Pray that you would make use of it, God. Make use of us. In Jesus' name.